You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, Elon Musk teases his plans for Twitter. The billionaire wants to take the social platform beyond a town square and create what he's calling X, the everything app. What does he mean? We'll discuss. Plus, Facebook whistleblower Frances Haugen joins me one year after her fiery testimony on Capitol Hill. We'll talk about what's changed, what hasn't, and what stayed the same. And is the blockchain the answer to get everyday people to invest in private markets? One fund's plans to tokenize its investments could open the door to the masses. I want to get back to our top story. Musk's about face agreeing to buy Twitter at the original price. But the judge in the Twitter trial saying show will go on for now. Let's break it all down with Bloomberg Sarah Fryer. So from a legal perspective, Sarah, Twitter hasn't dropped its lawsuit. They're still going to court as of now on October 17th, right? Well, we, we know that the parties are meeting today. We know that Twitter is talking with Elon Musk. But yeah, I mean, they, they have not said, sure, we, we trust that this offer that you've made is, is legitimate and we will do this. Um, we haven't seen any joint statement. We haven't seen any end to the saga yet. I, I think we're still staying tuned for, for what they might decide. And, and hey, if they don't come to an agreement, um, then we might see Musk deposed in the next couple of days, and we might see um, this go to court as scheduled on October 17th. Our understanding is that Twitter could ask the court to provide a consent judgment, if you will, and uh, you know create an agreement between the court and Twitter and Musk, not just between Twitter and Musk uh, that would be enforceable in a court of law. We are getting a glimpse into his vision for the social media platform. What do you make of this X the everything app thing? What does he mean by that? You know, he's talked a few times about the idea of having an app in the U.S. that would compete with the likes of WeChat in China. Um, I think we've, we've seen this ambition before. We've seen this from Mark Zuckerberg. We've seen this from Evan Spiegel. Nobody's quite pulled it off. So he's talking about an everything app. Um, I think that that is, is a, a big ambition of a lot of folks. It's just the internet um, may not work the same way here. We'll have to see. 
Meantime, you've been doing some math, and I believe the calculation is if Elon Musk gets rid of all the bots and spam on Twitter, he might lose 13 and a half million followers on his own. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people will lose followers. Listen, and it really depends on, on what you think of as a bot. There are a lot of automated accounts on Twitter that that people love, like such as ones that tell you when an earthquake has happened. Um, I, I don't think that that's what Elon Musk is, is talking about. Um, his account in particular tends to be disproportionately affected by folks who want to to take his identity to try to to do crypto scams, for instance. So I think that. Um, that those celebrity accounts um, do tend to be more overrun by bots, and if he were to get rid of that kind of, of account on Twitter, it would it would affect the biggest names like Elon Musk, like Justin Bieber, um, especially the longest-standing accounts on Twitter. All right. Well, interesting that we're starting to see his vision take more shape, of course, if this deal does indeed go through. Bloomberg Sarah Fraya, thank you as always. One year ago, former Facebook employee Frances Haugen shook Silicon Valley and the world when she blew the whistle on Facebook. She turned over tens of thousands of internal documents from the social networking giant to the media and the SEC. The Facebook papers, as they've come to be known, contain disturbing facts about the effects that social media platforms, including Instagram, were having on teens and kids. After testifying before U.S. Congress, she went on to speak around the world. And the question is, what is Facebook doing to amplify or, or expand hate? What is it doing to amplify or expand ethnic violence? You're right. I mean, Facebook didn't invent hate, but do you think it's making hate worse? Unquestionably, it's making hate worse. So in the last year, what has changed? What's improved? And what's left to do? Former Facebook employee turned whistleblower Francis Haugen joins me now. Francis, thank you so much for joining us. It is one year to the day since you testified before U.S. Congress. And I'm so curious what you feel has changed for the better since then, mm -hmm. and how much work is there still left to do? You know, in, in some really basic ways, um, Facebook has changed substantially, right? So Facebook had 10 years to release parental controls for Instagram, and it never got around to it and, until after my disclosures came out. Uh, there are other things, like Facebook has never had any public programs around trying to be more inclusive on its languages, and they launched something called No Language Left Behind, um, which is still only a, you know, a drop in the bucket, but at least they're trying. Um, internationally, we've seen some amazing progress legislatively. So uh, there's a law called the Digital Services Act, which is the first law that has ever required uh, the major platforms to disclose what risks they have. Like, actually, they would have had to disclose the risks to kids, for example, had this law been passed before. That finally got across the finish line in Europe after a four or five uh, year, year push. The information in my disclosures was credited with giving the, the last gas in the tank to like, get across the finish line. So some things have changed, but we still have a lot more work to do. Facebook has also changed its name to Meta, made this big pivot to the metaverse. What are your biggest concerns about the new Meta today? The way that we got here with Facebook was because of a set of incentives and, and a lack of oversight. Those incentives have not meaningfully changed. Facebook is still a private company. It's still driven to have to increase usage, increase profits quarter after quarter. We, Facebook said at its initial launch of the metaverse, we're going to do safety by design up front. But from what we've seen over the last, you know, last year, um, is that they're repeating the same problems that they had with Facebook. That the first time they let journalists into the metaverse, immediately women started getting groped. 
why didn't they talk to some women beforehand on like what might be dangerous that, that, that they could face in a space like this? So we need to see Meta actively engaging with the public, engaging with experts, and, and saying, let's design for safety from the start. So they just said today they're going to ask users for more direct feedback on that, what they'd like to see in their hmm. feed, their algorithm. Is that a good, is that a positive step in your view? That's it. In, in my opinion, there's a lot of ways to do this that would have huge opportunities for change. Many people know of kids who struggle with mental health issues, eating disorders. Um, part of what happens is Facebook's algorithms have a tendency to push people towards more extreme content. You know, you might start something like healthy eating and push to pro-anorexia content. Imagine a world where a kid who's trying to fight against these things, who knows this is a negative uh, influence on them, Imagine if Facebook actually said, hey, we noticed you're looking at a lot of content that other users have said makes them feel blue. Do you want to keep looking at it? Imagine if we had that ability to influence our feeds. Probably a lot of kids would be a lot healthier today. Interestingly, he told Joe Rogan this story about how he rejected the idea of an angry emoji and then said he wasn't here to design a service that makes people more angry. Do you think that's a little bit of revisionist hmm. history? It's interesting. So uh, when you look at the documents around emojis, the reason why they added them was they wanted people to, um, people felt bad putting a ha like a thumbs up on something that made them really angry. They don't want to be saw shown as endorsing that idea. It's one of these things where uh, Facebook didn't think about the unanticipated consequences of some of these design decisions. When you make an avenue where you do actively solicit more anger, you're going to get more angry content. So I, I haven't seen anything in the document saying that Mark said, say no to the angry face. Um, and I, I, but I, I can imagine that he wishes he had now. Now, you testified that only Mark Zuckerberg was holding Mark Zuckerberg accountable. And I'm curious what you think mm -hmm. of Sheryl Sandberg's departure after 14 years. Do you think her leaving mm. will change the internal culture? Uh, and if so, mm. how? So, I have a, so, so the fact that Mark remains, I think, is a much more significant issue than Sheryl leaving. You know, Mark has surrounded himself with people who tell him the same kinds of stories over and over again. You know, Facebook is just a mirror. It doesn't have responsibility. All these things that we're complaining about have always been present. We're just showing them to people. We don't, we don't play any role in this. We have no power. And Cheryl was a voice inside the company who said, hey, we have to get in front of issues. We can't just be reactive. Like, we can't wait for another story to leak. We can't wait for, you know, another UN report saying we caused an ethnic violence incident, um, like what happened with Myanmar. Um, I worry that because we don't have Cheryl's voice inside of the company, that the number of, of senior leaders who raise these issues has, has gone down in a meaningful way. Hmm. Elections are coming up. What are you watching? What's your take on how Meta is handling uh, this new election so far? I'm deeply concerned about the upcoming election. Uh, other news sources, I believe the New York Times, have reported on how Facebook shrunk their election team from around 300 people to 60 people uh, later earlier this year. That's a huge deal. When I was at Facebook, I watched, I, I worked in threat intelligence for the last eight months I was in the company. And I watched them catch over and over again things like Russian influence operations. There are a number of foreign nations, Russia, China, Iran, uh, even smaller countries that know that as an open society, as these un unregulated, um, underinvested in platforms show, like there's ways that they can go in there and manipulate our elections. And before Facebook was really trying, they were giving, they were giving perhaps not the best they could do, but they were really, really trying to, to blunt those edges. 
And I can't imagine that they can do an effective job with 80 percent fewer people protecting our elections. I know you've been talking to lawmakers. We've got the American Innovation and Choice Online Act from uh, Senators Klobuchar and Grassley. Mm -hmm. You've got Lena Khan being more aggressive at the FTC. You have the, the Supreme Court looking at Section 230. What is one way the law could change to have the most dramatic, potentially positive impact on big tech in your view? I'm a strong advocate for the, the platform, accountab uh, platform Accountability and Transparency Act um, uh, because right now we can't see behind the curtain of social media. We were able to push for safety features in cars or founding the Department of Transportation, you know, reducing the fatality rate from automobile accidents by effectively three and a half times because we could actually control cars. You know, we could crash test them. We could take them apart. We could understand how they were built and what, what shortcuts have been made. Right now, we can't do any of those things with social media. We can't crash test it. We can't confirm how it could be safer. So we don't know what to demand. So the, I, I hope they pass PADA in addition to Amy Klobuchar's bill. All right, uh, we're gonna continue this conversation after a quick break. Former Facebook employee turned whistleblower Francis Haugen, stay with us. I wanna hear so much more and especially wanna hear your thoughts on Elon Musk potentially taking over Twitter. We'll be right back in a moment. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. conversation now with former Facebook employee turned whistleblower Francis Haugen. Francis, I want to get your thoughts on, of course, the biggest news rocking social media, that is Elon Musk, saying he'll take over Twitter after all. What are the risks, in your view, of the world's richest man owning such an influential communications platform? 
The fact that Elon Musk can make a decision to buy one of our public spaces um, and be able to unilaterally make that decision really shows us how vulnerable we are right now in listing critical pieces of civic infrastructure to private corporations. Now, they're not, even though they functionally work as large parts of our information ecosystem, we have no ability to influence them. They can be bought and sold by anyone who has the money. Um, so I think they're a great illustration of how we've really put a lot of trust and a lot of um, uh, responsibility into the hands of, of a private company. He could own Twitter in a matter of days, right before mm -hmm. a midterm election. He has said he wants to reinstate former President Trump. What are your biggest concerns about that and, and his approach to quote unquote free speech in general? Hmm. So I think there's some big opportunities with regard to how Elon Musk is approaching safety. So the fact that he came out across, uh, like straight off the bat and said, we need to be worried about bots means he's talking to someone, he's at least talking to some people who know what they're talking about. Because the number one threat to our elections are bots. You know, there are large influence operations that act as amplifiers for, the, for whoever owns those networks. And often in the case, that's foreign, foreign organizations uh, like Russia, China, um, Iran. The fact that he's stepping in before the election is a big opportunity. At the same time, I hope he takes time to listen to the security and trust, uh, trust and safety professionals inside of Twitter, because every single social network is different, and they all have their own quirks and their own tr struggles. And so I hope he takes the time to really understand what, what those teams have done over time so that we don't disrupt things before the election. Now, according to the SEC, uh, and the information also did a big piece on this, and you, there's been a huge spike in the number of whistleblowers that have come forward since you came forward. One of them is Peter Zatko, a former Twitter employee mm -hmm. who talked about the egregious, um, uh, egregious flaws in Twitter's own security. What do you make of the rise uh, in these whistleblowers and the role that they can play in providing transparency where Congress has failed to regulate? There's the, if, if, if viewers take away only one thing today from the time that we spent together, it's the idea that more and more of our economy is driven by opaque systems now. So, you know, back when we uh, had a, a more industrial-oriented economy, you know, you could buy the products of those factories. You could interview uh, workers who worked in those factories and understand what was happening. But now we have more and more systems where the important details all live on data centers. You know, all we get to see is our own screens. We're limited in understanding how these systems work or, like, what choices were made, what are the consequences. Whistleblowers are only going to become more and more important because... Uh, in the case of things like trust and safety online, you know, there are no academic classes you can take in this today. You know, there's like a few on content moderation at places like Stanford, but that, that's about it. We're reliant on professionals like, like, like Peter um, to understand what the limitations are in these things. They're our first line of defense and we need to be protecting them. What do you think of TikTok? Is there a unique threat posed by TikTok in particular? I'm particularly concerned about TikTok because TikTok uh, is intentionally designed to be manipulated. You know, it's a system that originally originated in China um, with the and it's a system that's it's architected from the beginning with controlling what messages are distributed. There are it's there are famous um, uh, when you there are control rooms you can go into where you can see the most important uh, most popular content on TikTok. And there have been scandals where things like if you were visibly gay or visibly disabled, your videos got taken down. We should be deeply concerned that uh, this is a Chinese company. 
you know, let's say China invaded Taiwan, I guarantee you we would not see any pro-Taiwanese messages going across TikTok. And because it's designed to be incredibly sticky, be incredibly addictive, like you can't passively watch TikTok. Like it pulls you and you have to engage in order to get the next video. There's like a little hit of dopamine over and over again. You know, it, it draws kids kids in. And so I, I, I strongly encourage us to look at, do we want to have China having so much influence over our, if our information environment, particularly for our children? Now, I know you've been on a year of uh, public speaking engagements, testifying before other governments. You also moved to Puerto Rico. You got married. No, I moved, I moved two years ago. Nonprofit. I moved two years ago, yeah. yeah. <laughs> two years ago. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so you were in Puerto Rico. Um, you yeah. launched uh, this new nonprofit, Beyond the Screen. Mm -hmm. Talk to us a little bit about mm -hmm. how, how has your life changed since becoming a whistleblower, quote unquote, and do you have any regrets? Mm -hmm. Interesting. I think the biggest way in which my life has changed is, is, you know, I can, I can sleep at night, you know, like before I came out, um, I think anyone who's ever had to hold a secret where you thought, uh, other people's lives were on the line knows how hard that is. And, you know, I, I, I had, uh, uh, I had to get a new passport right about the time I left Facebook and I had to get a new driver's license this year because I had lost my driver's license. And I looked at those two photos and I was like, oh my goodness, I aged backwards 10 years. Like, that's not how it's supposed to work. Um, and so uh, I, I have been so grateful for the experience over the last year because I know how few public figures that are women um, uh, have easy lives online. And, like, I have opened DMs on Twitter or Instagram and, and no one harasses me. You know, I've, I've, I've only felt mm. supported. And I'm, I'm so grateful um, to be able to give people hope about the idea that we can change social media. You know, we, we, we're going to figure out how to do this and we can do it together. All right. Well, thank you so much for obviously sharing your story with us. Uh, everybody check out Beyond the Screen, uh, Francis Haugen's new nonprofit. Um, Francis, thank you for taking the time. We appreciate it. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. Elon Musk wants to turn Twitter into the everything app. Here to explain what that might mean are Ed Ludlow. So, Ed, what kind of clues do we have about what he's really talking about here? Yeah, you know, we have clues. And shameless plug, I kind of put a piece out on Twitter this morning about some of the things Musk has talked about changing. We're certainly at a stage where there's more questions than answers, right? You see that reflected in equity markets. You know, Twitter was down after a ginormous gain 24 hours ago. Tesla down on concern. Musk will have to sell down Tesla stock to fund this deal that he's distracted. But there's this idea of X the everything app. And you know, what Musk has talked about in the past on stage in tweets is growing Twitter from a user base of around 240 million currently to 1 billion. And I think a lot of the street are looking for signs of what that means. If we bring up this chart and look at sort of Twitter's revenue growth relative to Tesla, Twitter's growth has been underwhelming, right? And there is hope that Musk can inject some new ideas. For Twitter itself, that's about opening up the algorithm, open sourcing it, about dealing with the bots issues, having a time-limited edit button. But he's also talked about this idea that Twitter can be a one-stop shop for other things. Things, more video functionality, making it more akin perhaps to a WeChat in Asia. You know, there's many more users in China alone using WeChat and various functionality on it than are using Twitter globally. So I think there's a lot of optimism that you can do that. But I go back to the discussion we discovered between Dorsey and Musk in those court filings and the texts that were released as part of Discovery. 
they want to enact changes and they felt that the only way to do that was to take the company private. There's optimism on the street that will happen, and there's also optimism from the sales side that Musk will unlock the new functionality that will help Twitter's user base grow, but also help its top line growth as well. The kind of wild card, Musk isn't interested in an ad-based model. He wants to kind of move away from that and monetize in other ways. So it's going to be really interesting. But again, let's take a reality check, Em. I think we're a long way away from knowing what's <laughs> going on. Am I going to Delaware? Are you going to Delaware? Nobody knows. We do not know, and boy, would I love to know if you and I are going to be in Delaware in two weeks. Okay, thank you, Ed. Uh, I want to dig into this a little further with Lead Edge Capital founding partner, Mitchell Green. Mitch, you know, I know you're an investor in Uber, which has aspired to this sort of super app idea. We've seen Tencent really succeed at it. What do you make of Elon Musk's idea to try to turn Twitter into an everything app? Luck. Um, it's hard. Um, there hasn't been luck. We, we're not. We, so we don't own Uber anymore, but we do own ByteDance, which obviously owns the, the very popular TikTok app. Um, we do own. We, we were early investors in Alibaba Group, which is obviously, uh, and then as well as Ant Financial, which has built a super app. Um, I think he's got his work cut out to him. But we're, but we're sure going to talk about it, and in three to five years, we're going to know. Um, you know, did it work? Look, Elon is a, I totally agree that he can't accomplish this. What he wants to try to do is a public company. Um, sure, I'm sure it's not, having not spent a ton of time looking at Twitter, I'm sure it's not the most efficiently run business. I'm sure there's tons of ways he can fix it. It will take a lot of time. He's amazing at sending rockets into space and he proved the world wrong, um, you know, with, with his car business. He obviously started his career in payments. Um, Time will tell if it uh, if, if he's successful in turning around Twitter. I think he's, it's 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 a very um, tall order, uh, and it's not like Facebook and ByteDance are going to sit around doing nothing while they're while, you know while he tries to do it. So. Uh, from a bigger picture, you know, I find it interesting that we could potentially see this massive deal, you know, him buying Twitter for $44 billion happen in the middle of, you know, uh, potentially, a, you know, a, a drop into a recession. We're, we also saw Adobe agree to buy Figma for uh, $20 billion. And we're waiting for this big Microsoft Activision deal. What do you think about how the M&A landscape is keeping up pace despite the fact that the economy is so bad? Well, it's a great question. Um, corporates around the world have, you know, and these tech corporates, Google, Microsoft, Facebook, Amazon, have, you know, Alibaba, Tencent, have ginormous sums of cash. Um, by the way, Oracle, you could add in there, SAP, you could add in there. At some point, I think we're going to wake up over the next 12 to 15, 18 months, and there's going to be a heck of a lot more M&A than we've seen in a long time. I, I don't know when it's going to happen. Maybe it, I don't think it's starting yet. I also think you're going to see a wave of buyout activity too. Um, the problem, I think, why the buyout, by the buy, why the by the LBO fund activity, private equity fund activity, right now is pretty slow, and you've seen busted deals. Um, just because the credit markets are not in good shape, um, just related, you know, like there's a huge backlog. There's a huge. Uh, we're not credit investors, but there is a huge, like log jam right now with the Citrix deal. And these banks are going to take ginormous losses on them. Um, and so, like the credit markets for a lot of this activity is super slow. So, like, I don't know how much leverage 
that Twitter is going to take in this buyout and things like that. But like anything that requires lots of, and I think that's why you're seeing spreads on lots of potential deals like trade pretty wide because the credit markets are so uncertain right now. Now that is an impact strategic. Let's talk about, okay, let's talk then a little bit about uh, venture and the private markets. Venture firms seem to have a lot of dry powder that is piling up um, and not a lot of places to put it. Some folks have told us they're waiting for valuations to go down before they deploy anything. Of course, there are a lot of companies um, struggling and suddenly their balance sheets don't look so attractive to investors. What are you seeing? Uh, how are you evolving your strategy as macroeconomic concerns remain? Mac, good economy, bad economy. I think nobody knows where the economy is going. I read an ISI survey that said like 90% of investors think that there's going to be a recession in 2023. The crowd is usually wrong. It's not like we were all sitting around in February of 23. You know, sorry, in February of 20, thinking you know COVID was going to happen a month later, or in August of 08, like oh the world's about to end because Lehman Brothers is about to blow up. Like who knows? Like I, the crowd is usually wrong. By the way, I'm probably myself in the crowd. Um, in terms of like the venture landscape or growth equity landscape, right now, and I think you could you can expand it to private equity landscape or real estate asset landscape. This it, it, specifically in like venture and like if, if you're thinking like hey companies with 15 million in revenue to 100 million in revenue that are software and internet or fintech businesses. There's just a too big a spread between what the buyer wants and what like a private equity or venture fund is going to pay because it's driven by public markets. And in companies right now, for the most part, and I think in the spread has already started to come down. Like it's definitely tightened up from today where it was six months ago. You just have to make the assumption that public, private markets lead public markets. Sorry, public markets lead private markets, and as a result, like tons of companies raise money in the back half of 21 and early in 22, and like they raise like two years of money. And so, like you're a company right now that raised still has 100 million plus in the balance sheet. Your last round was probably done at too high a price, but like you don't have to raise money right now. Fast forward a year. You might be in a recession at that point. You've probably burned a bunch of money. We think it's going to take another six to 12 months for a lot of this stuff to work through. And that, you know, the back half of next year in the 24 will be super busy because then a bunch of these companies are going to raise. And those companies that hit or beat their numbers might raise up rounds. Um, but those companies that miss their numbers will probably be raising down rounds. Again, who knows? So, maybe not. Maybe the markets go back up. But if comps stay where they are today, which is kind of near historical averages. So what advice are you giving your portfolio companies right now? Great question. Don't panic um, is one thing. Run your business like, you know, keep your best employees, keep your best employees happy. Um, you know, layoffs are not always bad. Like, you know, some of the greatest companies on earth over a year, over time, have like laid off five to 10% of their people every year. Like GE was like well known for doing it 30 years ago is trimming. Like all these companies are run with too much fat. Like every company on the, every software company that's been funded with venture funding. So what are we telling them? That's a great question. I think we're telling them, look, make sure you're, you've got capital for the next like 18 months. Make sure unit, your unit economics work so, like, you know, you don't need three or four year customer paybacks. You pay back in, you know, 18 months or under. Um, 
make, but, but make sure you're invested in the future. Like, don't freak out. Like, the great, we're going to look back in five to ten years from now, and like, great companies will have been created during this time period. And you need to be bold. You just want want to be smart about it, and make sure you're not standing on the cliff, you know, with your pants down if the tide goes out. Okay. Don't panic, don't freak out, and don't stand on a cliff with your pants down. Those are all tangible pieces of advice, Mitch. All right, uh, Mitch Green, thanks for giving it to us straight. As always, uh, appreciate no uh, your thoughts on all of this. Thank you. Okay, coming up, how the blockchain could help everyday people invest in some of the world's most popular private companies in the world. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year, that's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. crypto report and today we're covering the so-called tokenization of funds which could potentially expand access to private markets to a broader set of investors for that i want to bring in bloomberg shanali basic shanali take it away thank you emily you know whenever i go around to investment conferences more and more this gentleman named carlos domingo the ceo of securitize is often there and he is joining us now to talk about this because recently today really they announced a deal with hamilton lane recently another deal with kkr Carlos, when you're talking to these large fund managers, Hamilton Lane alone has more than $800 billion under supervision. How quickly are they starting to look at blockchain as a way to expand their investor base and bring more people into their funds? Hi, Sonali. Thanks sir, for having me. I think it's been a journey for these asset managers. We started talking to them you know, back in 2018, to some of them like KKR. 
and you know they've been basically building out the internal capabilities and the knowledge and at the same time the industry has evolved as well in terms of you know making blockchain easier to use in terms of like you know wallets performance of the underlying blockchains etc and also more importantly the regulatory clarity of what does it mean to actually tokenize a fund on the blockchain and who can manage those securities and who has licenses to do that, etc. So it's been kind of a journey, but I think at this point in time, and I, I think that the fact that KKR and Hamilton Lane, which are two massive private equity firms, have decided to do that, um, I think it, it signals an inflection point in the industry where we're going to start seeing massive adoption going forward. So let's take KKR as an example, because an everyday person can't really say, hey, let me put $10,000 into a KKR fund. Fund. But now they're making a private equity fund available through tokenization. What does that mean? How is it different from a traditional private equity fund? Is there a key a separation between that and the normal fund that you would invest in as a large institution? Well, so asset managers, as you said, I think they've, they've recognized that you know they've been extremely successful building a UM primarily going after institutional investors and ultra high net worth individuals, and that they are. You know, there is a, a, a new breed of investors that are individual investors, they are much younger, they are digital, etc., that they don't have access to, to those products at all because of the structure of the products is designed for institutions, etc. So they all recognize that they have to figure out how to reach out to them. And I think they see, you know, blockchain and tokenization as the most, if you want, modern and advanced way of providing this you know, fractional ownership in a very efficient way, being able to track the beneficial ownership of the of the securities, provide, you know, compliance, asset servicing, uh, et cetera. So they all, that conversation usually is very easy. And I think what boils down later is about how do we do it, uh, et cetera. The, the fund itself is very similar. It's slightly different in the sense that this is a feeder that has a slightly different structure, uh, which we're trying to make it actually more uh, individual investor friendly. So, but overall, you should expect that the performance of the tokenized version, you know, very closely tracks the performance of the original private equity mm -hmm. fund that was only available for institutions. Now, how much of this was even possible even five or six or seven years ago? How much was this made possible because SEC rules have made it more possible for accredited investors to invest in a wider array of funds? Well, the, the SEC rules to allow for more accessibility to accredited investors haven't really changed significantly. They did some improvements uh, two years ago in terms of who qualifies as an accredited investor. I think what also has happened is that more and more people are accredited investors, right? Because you, you know, the wealth is growing in the in the in the United States, and today there's around 13.6 million people um, that qualify as accredited investors. That's more than 10% of the households that collectively manage 75 trillion dollars. Mm -hmm. um, I think the issue was that the products that those asset management uh, companies had, they were not accessible to these investors because they're not being served by the current right. whether wealth management or registered investor advisors. So well, I think that's what the, it begs the question, when you're looking at the opportunity to invest in a broader array of alternatives, do you think that crypto, blockchain technology in particular can be used for more of these types of purposes more than they will be used in the, in the longer term future for actual tokens? Actually, you know, if you if you look at the size of the of the space that we're looking at, this is we're talking about trillions and trillions of dollars of real world assets and funds and you know credit and real estate, etc. That can be tokenized and put into the into the blockchain. So that works anything else that you've seen in, in more like native digital assets, if you want, like Bitcoin or, or Ethereum. So I think that the potential of this becoming the biggest thing in crypto is definitely there. Carlos Domingo, that's the CEO of Securitize. Uh, looking forward to your next deal. I hope you come back to talk to us about it. Emily? Definitely. Thanks for having me. All right.
Chanali, thank you. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. SpaceX launching a manned crew of four on a NASA mission to the International Space Station, including a Russian cosmonaut and the first Native American woman to travel to space. Our Ed Ledlow back with all the details. Ed, what exactly happened today? Yeah, so we're deep into a 29-hour journey to the International Space Station. As you said, Nicole Mann, one of the crew members, in fact, the crew commander, becomes the first Native American woman to go to space. So it's a landmark in that respect. She is a member of one of the Round Valley Indian uh, tribes here in California. Um, but there was also a Russian cosmonaut on board. It's the first time SpaceX is carrying a Russian citizen, a Russian cosmonaut, from US soil to the ISS. And as you know, Anne, we talked about this week some of the controversial tweets Elon Musk, who is the CEO of SpaceX, made about the war in Ukraine and about his belief about a, a negotiated settlement with Russia. But it's going to take them 29 hours to get there. Talk to me in the next show and we'll see if they made it safely. But this is a kind of routine operation for SpaceX, right? It's their fifth crew mission, their eighth or ninth um, human flight mission. And, you know, it takes the crew to 250 miles above the Earth. So how does this fit into then the broader mission and the other things that SpaceX is working on? Yeah, I think, you know, what SpaceX is really doing in conjunction with NASA is ramping up to go beyond the International Space Station, right? You know, they're involved in the project more broadly to go to the moon, but that relies on a different company's rocket, Artemis. And as we know, that is behind schedule. We don't expect SLS and Artemis to launch until about mid-November. You know, the next kind of uh, big mission for SpaceX in, in kind of advancing human space flight is Polaris Dawn. And, you know, through the Polaris program, that they basically are going to push the boundaries of what they're capable of doing in terms of how long and how often humans can go into space. But a part of that is contingent on the development of Starship. And what we're really waiting on from SpaceX is news of when we'll get that orbital test flight of Starship, because we don't know when that will be. And we've talked so much about Tesla uh, and the impact on Tesla with Elon Musk taking over Twitter, and less so about SpaceX since it's a private company. But what do we know about how folks at SpaceX feel about Elon Musk taking on another big company. Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, Elon Musk has also been divisive within the ranks at SpaceX, right? There are many employees that do not believe in some of the things he's said and disagree with some of his actions. There is also an element of key man risk. You know, Elon Musk is a hands-on uh, manager and executive at SpaceX in much the same way that he is at Tesla. You know, he often attends some of the key launches. He's often present in Hawthorne, where SpaceX is a kind Kind of headquarters and R&D center is. So there is a question, you know, if he takes on Twitter, what does that mean with respect to how he splits his time between those three companies? But as we know, he is a man that spends a lot of time on a private jet, a lot of time on his phone, and doesn't sleep as much as the average human. All right. Uh, indeed, Ed Ludlow, thank you as always. Uh, we'll be watching for the results of this latest mission. Um, and that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Uh, coming up Thursday, we've got Google Senior Vice President of Device and services Rick Osterloh at the company's Made by Google hardware launch event. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.